Um, I, uh, I came to Clapham for a fortnight when I was 19. How about that? Um, and yeah, exactly. And I came to Clapham with uh, Newcastle University Navigators, um, who were, you know, obviously a Christian student organisation, uh, for a fortnight on mission. Um, and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at all. It terrified me. It was quite exciting, but it was really quite peculiar. And, um, and we were based at a place called Bonneville Baptist Church, which I don't know if it still exists or if anybody has changed its name, but either way, spent a fortnight um, sleeping on a sports hall floor uh, with my mates and navigators. Uh, go back a year, and I wasn't a Christian. So what happened to me was, so I mentioned my mum. My mum, who, you know, had a really tough time, but she ended up going back to college. She uh, eventually ended up teaching and being a lecturer, senior lecturer in the department where she'd she'd studied as a mature student. She was in business studies at what was then Preston Polytechnic and is today the University of Central Lancashire. Um, And she comes home from work one day, um, 88, or maybe I came home from sixth form, but either way, we just got back, and she breaks the news that her and about a third of the department was going to be uh, seconded to college in Singapore. I thought, that's interesting. Um, I'd only been abroad once before in my life, finished my A-levels, um, went over with her, with my sister. Uh, I was you know, waiting for my A-level results, so I was going to be the first back. And so I got the box room. I got the room that nobody wanted, because I was only there for five or six weeks, and everybody else was there for going to be longer. We didn't know how long at the time. Brackets, the whole enterprise failed and they were all back by Christmas. But anyway, um, but I, 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 I was there for five or six weeks. Um, and uh, so, I, as I said, I was not brought up as a Christian and uh, I wouldn't have counted myself an atheist, but I would have thought, Jesus Christ, interesting person. Um, some of the things he says are interesting. I suspect he probably existed. Not very relevant to me, Christianity. The Bible's an old book, um, uh, I don't need to take much notice of that. And I was already involved in politics, we've already established, and I had my own answers to the world problems. And so why would I need uh, to believe in any kind of God? So the, this house that we stayed in in Singapore was um, belonged to the college, and it, the people who lived in it previously were lecturers, a couple who were lecturers at the college, and they were Christians, and they'd left some of their stuff behind in the box room, principally their books. And I had not really brought that much money with me, so I couldn't go having it large around Singapore that much. Uh, I loved my sister to bits, but I didn't want to spend every single hour with her. Um, and so got bored and ended up reading them. Didn't mean to. The first book I saw on the shelf was, uh, it was called I Once Loved a Girl. And it was about, it was written by an African pastor to the men in his church, the young men in his church, all about sexual ethics. And I thought, get knotted, <laughs> having none of that sunshine. Uh, don't talk to me about what I can and cannot do with consenting ladies. And, um, and I, um, uh, so put that on. And then, you know, so I, I brought one book with me, Arthur Kersler's Darkness at Noon, great book flipping miserable um so i read that i then looked back onto the shelves and there was some aa mill and i read all the winnie the pooh um uh, again um and and then eventually um picked up some other things and they're books that you might refer to as kind of apologetics and to cut a long story short it struck me um that christianity is true um and that jesus's claims are not vague in fact the bible is not vague 
And you know, we can, and often you get pushed back in an era which is, you know, you come across atheists and you come across people who believe in a spirituality but are vague about it. And people will say, well, look, there's so many routes to God. There's so many different religions. How do you know this one's right? I guess what struck me, and, you know, forgive me if this is overly simplistic, but it still makes sense to me 30-odd years on. If the resurrection happened, there is a God. We know his name. Stop the search. It's all over. It's all over. And the question then is, does that matter? And so what Jesus' claim is that um, he died for a purpose, and that purpose was me and you. But in that room in August 1988, it was me died. Why? Because I'm a sinner. We could unpack that if you like, but I'm a person who lives well short of the glory of God. I do and think and say awful things. My life is not attuned to God's will for my life. I know I'm capable of doing good, but I'm more often I'm programmed to do the opposite. And so I need forgiving. And, you know, there's got, and, and we believe in justice, don't we? There's got to be justice. And so I'm, what, what, what on earth do I do if I'm in a situation where, you know, so Jesus came. Um, by the way, one of the other things that really convicted me, really struck me, was reading about the Dead Sea Scrolls in these books. Uh, I really had a lot of time on my hands, honestly. Um, and the, the carbon dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's every single book in the Bible in the Old Testament bar one amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, carbon dated, proves they were written well before the New Testament times. Therefore, you cannot have made up Jesus' address, so to speak, his life, his circumstances, just to meet what was in Isaiah, for example. Also, you can't have made up Isaiah in order to make it look like Jesus met the prophecies about him. That's a slam dunk. There's not a lot of science about this, but there is some, and that tells you the Old Testament, those prophecies about Jesus, they were written before Jesus' time. And when you've got two to 300 predictions coming true in one fella, come off it. Accident, you're having a laugh. And, and, and so if he came, if he promised, if he delivered, and God delivered the promise that Jesus would come the first time, you can be pretty sure he's coming a second time. In which case, I've got a problem. And Jesus solves it because he dies on the cross and he literally pays for all my sins, past, present, and future. And I could, I'll go here now rather than any, you know, I might as well say it now, but when I have been through tough times and I have lapsed in my 20s, I have made massive mistakes, errors, cowardice, um, you know, Peter moments, shall we say, where I've effectively denied Christ and I was reminded by my pastor, Paul, who's a wonderful guy, he said, Tim, look, the thing about sin for the Christian is it spoils your relationship with God, but it doesn't end it. It doesn't end it. And that's the most beautiful thing when you understand what grace is and what it means. It's that security forever. It is liberty forever. And that is something that I can, well, I can barely put into words. So look, I won't say all of that descended on me one night in August 1988, but Christianity is true. I'm sure it is. It's not vague. It is not vague. The New Testament is written in order to persuade you. I refer you to John 20 and the last two verses uh, where John tells us that these things were written um, so that we might know uh, that uh, Christ is the Lord and that we might have life in his name. It, there's a deliberate purpose in writing the New Testament documents. They are not vague philosophy. They are an attempt to say to you, this guy really existed, he really died, he rose again, and you can rely on this. Um, I talked to a friend um, yesterday, and we were uh, talking, and he, he mentioned, um, so I'm ripping off several people, and I'll tell you this, but a friend told me, Charles Coulson. 
um, who was one of the, he was the architect, if you like, of the Watergate scandal, um, uh, which saw Nixon lose the presidency in the early 70s. And he says, the Watergate scandal proves that the resurrection is true. I thought, what? Um, and, and here's the thing. He says, 12 men couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You telling me that 12 men who faced martyrdom, and most of them achieved it, were persecuted, tortured, executed upside down. You telling me they kept a lie for 30, 40, 50, 60 years? I wish I had your faith. I wish I had your faith. And I think that's massively convicting when you think that the, the evidence for the New Testament documents being reliable are overwhelming. So look, I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me and thank God he did because I've got no hope otherwise. So, right, um, Navigators, Clapham, 1989. Um, um, okay, look, so um, I came back from Singapore um, and met up with all my mates in, uh, in Lancashire who thought I'd gone completely flipping nuts. And, you know, maybe I had. And uh, my mates were all in the band with me we were terrible we were written off as a fourth rate new order which I was really quite proud of actually if you're gonna be a fourth rate anything be a fourth rate new order um, so I went to university in Newcastle uh, eight weeks after I became a Christian having not met another Christian in that eight weeks which is a really interesting thing and I'm, I'm thank God that um, I kept going shall we say for eight weeks um, as an 18 year old post A levels all the temptations that were and all, all the rest of it so I get to university in Newcastle and my next door neighbour is a second year medic called Pete, uh, very tall, and he, uh, he knocked on my door. He could have had no idea uh, anything about me at all and that my name was Tim and it was written on the door. That was it. And he invited me to Navigators and that was the first Christian I met um, having become one two months earlier on. So God knows what he's doing. He does not leave you alone. He does not leave you alone. His hand is upon you if you are following, following him. So I went to a Navigator's, um, you know, coffee morning or something equally glamorous, which is exciting, exactly as exciting as it sounds. Um, and uh, there's a couple of guys there who were twins, really lovely guys, one more talkative than the other and quite challenging, and knew that I was involved in the student union in politics and all that kind of thing. And he said to me, Tim, why are you involved in politics? It's a mucky business. And I don't remember what I said back to him. I'm pretty sure it was pretty clueless. But in the years that have followed, it has made me think. And so you probably know that, or maybe you don't know, but every week I do a podcast, a radio show on, um, uh, on Premier Christian Radio, which is listened to by literally dozens of people. And, um, and, um, uh, we, uh, and, and uh, we have a book of the same name. Copies are available, co-authored by Josh Price here. Um, exactly. Uh, I reckon his are the, um, uh, are the better chapters and all, most references to Wilberforce are, are, are Josh's. Um, so uh, team effort, we um, put that book together, I think because I really think two things. First of all, when I first became a member of parliament, I'd, I'd backslid in my 20s um, and uh, I unbackslid in my early 30s. And then two or three years later, I became a member of parliament and um, so I was thinking afresh, what does it actually mean to be a Christian in politics? And it certainly strikes me, and it is more complex than this, but essentially, I don't think, and other people will disagree, and that's fine, but I don't think it's my job as a Christian in Parliament to legislate, to make people who are not Christians live as though they were. 
I see no value in that at all. There's an old Edmund Burke saying that goes that all the laws against the godless have not saved one single soul. I just think it's counterproductive. I don't think it's liberal. I don't think we're called to do it. In the Gospels, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. So what is the role of a Christian in politics? And I think to, uh, to some degree at least, you know, you are, you have some profile, even if it's just in your constituency, use it to speak publicly for Christ, to set out the gospel for people who might not hear it otherwise and to live differently, to live counterculturally. Um, so um, that's really, I guess, where I started. So fast forward through my time in Parliament. I was elected in 2005 by 267 votes, which is, a you know, we're talking recount territory. In fact, we're talking two recount territory. Um, and so I became an MP then um, and... I've had five terms in Parliament. I've had the back end of the Blair Brown era. I've had the coalition era. I've had the super duper excitement of the not very long era where I was the leader. Um, and then the, uh, which of course was the Brexit referendum Parliament. Then I've had the referendum, then I've had, the, if you like, the Brexit aftermath Parliament from 17 to 19. And then we've had the plague Parliament um, from 19 onwards. So I feel in many ways blessed to have been in Parliament through five very different sets of, of, of eras. Um, there's no doubt, um, I'll lay it on the line now, that I think I, in my first couple of years, two or three years in Parliament, I was pretty well fellowshipped um, with a group of Christian MPs. Then life gets busy and I stop being, uh, at least not so regularly. And you end up with ambition taking hold of you. Ambition's not a bad thing, but if you're not careful, it ends up becoming all about vanity. I often think that the sin that... Um, drags down most politicians is not so much the grotty, uh, you know, lurid stuff you read about in the tab tabloids, it's just vanity. Um, somebody once said, somebody very cruel, once said that politics is showbiz for ugly people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was a failed pop singer and I just, I want to get somehow to get on the stage and here I am. Um, I, but, uh, but there is something in that, the desire to be loved. And obviously the desire to be loved is, is a key thing because you want to get elected, but it's more than that, I think. So I, I don't want to do too much sort of self-analysis, but I think there's no doubt whilst I was uh, seeking to be a faithful Christian and broadly, I think I was, um, I think that I did not, I did not surround myself with, um, with the kind of advice that I think I probably ought to have done. So I'm not saying it was wrong thing for me to be president of the Liberal Democrats or to run for the party leadership, but I certainly got myself into a position where I was asked various questions about my faith, often to do with, if you like, what the, the personal morality, which is an outworking of it. Um, and I handled some of those questions all right and some of them not all right. And in the end, whilst I sat in the back of the leader's bus during the 2017 general election, which was the re-liveried Crystal Palace team bus, um, I, we, called, we called the leader's bit at the back the Pardew Boudoir. Um, so it's where all the kind of, you know, the, the, um, there you are, um, where, the, uh, where I sat and my advisors would sit. I was sat in there on my own sometime during that uh, general election. I thought, this is unsustainable. Um, I have either got to be a terrible leader because I'll, all I'll be doing is batting away questions about my faith, never talking about Europe or the NHS or policing or any of the things I'm meant to be talking about as the party's main spokesperson, or I've got to be a really terrible Christian, kind of pretend and shrug it off and slope my shoulders and, oh, it doesn't really matter, in order to be able to talk about the politics. I thought, they are two rubbish options. Let's pick the third and so um, in many ways, you know, I, so I feel, someone asked me early on today, in fact, two people, totally circumstances, asked me today, 
you know, what do you think about the leadership? Are you pleased that you're not? Or, and my answer is, I'm really glad I was leader and I'm really glad I'm not leader. Um, and I think that there's a wiser person than me, brackets, Kate Forbes might be a wiser person than me, close brackets, but a wiser person than me could have dealt with that. And at the time I didn't. But God uses people who screw up, doesn't he? In fact, that's all he's got to use. So I feel, you know, very blessed. You could argue. So I was at 16, joined the Liberals, you know, worked my way up, president of the Students' Union, stood for a hopeless seat that I couldn't win and a hopeless seat that I couldn't win and then a seat that I could win that I didn't win, spent time on the council, eventually win, you know, edge my way to the Lib Dem front bench because those were the days when we had some MPs and we could have a front bench. And, uh, and then all the way up and then you get to be president and you get to be leader and then after two years you give it up. And, and in many ways... It was a real blessing because it was an ability to show... So in my resignation speech, I I quoted Isaac Watts, you know, what would make me give up something like that? Would it have to be something so amazing, so divine? It demands my life, my heart, my all. And Jesus does. And so I felt that was a real blessing. And so all former leaders have to convince themselves and the world that they're still important. And so they set up organisations afterwards. And I'm no different. Um, So we set up something very small called Faith in Public, um, which Josh and I are part of. We're a team of four or five people. And uh, we do other things as well. And we talk, uh, like I'm doing now. We broadcast, we write. And we seek to use what limited Z-list profile I've got to be able to share the gospel with people who might not hear it otherwise, to contend for it in the public square, um, to contend, hopefully in a, in a gracious, gentle way, for the right to speak about faith and to be of faith, not just the Christian faith in the public square, and also to try and encourage people who are Christians to think about politics wisely. So let's see in the um, moments ahead if we can do a bit of that. What, do, what does Christianity have to say then about uh, politics? Well, I'll try and rattle through some, some th- thoughts. First of all, Um, the eternal perspective allows you to not panic. I mean, if you were to look at the news just this week, you know, Xi Jinping and Putin getting together, you know, two potentially aggressive enemy nuclear superpowers, one of whom's already invaded a sovereign state next door. The other is clearly thinking about it. Um, And, uh, and, you know, are they going to support one another? You think, where is this leading? As somebody who grew up during the Cold War and had enormous relief in the 90s, thinking, well, that's behind us. It's all over now. Peace, 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 peace. How demoralising is it to be kind of back where we were when I was a teenager? That's demoralising. You see the potential, hopefully not, but the, the risk of a, another 2008 banking style, 2008 style banking crisis, uh, the aftermath of the pandemic, high inflation, all sorts of other things to terrify you. Let's just remember this. You know, I'm often, uh, I often talk about this really. But you think about the Revelation, the book of Revelation, all these references to Babylon throughout Revelation as a kind of as imagery. Um, the first readers of Revelation will, read, will have read that and would have looked around them and seen not Babylon, but Rome, the terrifying, persecuting, hugely powerful, real, living Roman Empire. Babylon was in rubble, and it had been for five, six hundred years. And I just wonder whether um, God, through the author of Revelation, is kind of saying to those people and to us today, mighty they may look, mighty for now they may be, they will end up in rubble. That mighty Roman Empire... Well, it's a World Heritage Site now. There's the Hadrian's Wall just north of me. You can go and look at some ruins. That's all that's left of them. And every single empire, every government, every regime that you love or fear, 
will also end in rubble except one. So that gives you the freedom to simply not panic. If you read to the end of Revelation and you're following Jesus, then you know it ends well. It ends really wonderfully, wonderfully well. So no need to be terrified. The other thing it probably tells people when it comes to thinking about politics is that love in the Bible is never or rarely kind of soppy or vague. It is visceral and it's sacrificial. Um, sacrificial seen nowhere more obviously than on the cross that um, because he loved us, he gave everything he had for us, enormous pain and then a spiritual pain we can't even begin to imagine. He was humiliated uh, and tortured and killed for us and he chose to do that. So love is sacrificial but it's also visceral. It takes you over. I'm always um, moved by people who understand their Aramaic and Roman New, New Testament Greek better than I do, brackets, I don't at all, um, who unpack, for example, the language behind the, I believe, weak English translations of Jesus was deeply moved, Jesus once more deeply moved, Jesus wept from the account just before the raising of Lazarus. Those are apparently really weak translations. What it actually tells us is that Jesus is bawling, bawling in a rage like a wild animal as he approaches the tomb. Wonderful to realise that love in the Bible is not soppy, it's not sappy, it's not skin deep, it is real. Jesus loves Lazarus, he loves Martha and Mary and it causes him pain to see their pain and he shares it. So that, that is what love looks like and therefore our interaction with the people we're put amongst also ought to look something similar. Um, for Christians, what should we think about? Well, gosh, you know, I've talked about the big things in the world. There is poverty, there is homelessness, there's climate change, there's all sorts of hideous international things going on. What do we, what do? We do? Um, well, what does God tell Moses when Moses asks, what shall I do? God tells him, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? Well, for Moses, it was a staff. For you, it's your place in your family. It might be your role as a school teacher or a person who works in refuse collection or whatever it might be. That is what you can use to do God's will to love in the place you have been put, wherever that may be. Um, politics is essentially, I think this is something that's really occurred to me um, and I thank God for that over the time I've been a member of Parliament, that politics is fundamentally not about transforming the world. Sometimes you're lucky you can do something that really changes things for the better, but it's fundamentally about service. It's about serving other people. It's not ultimately about salvation. Politics is not the answer to all things. Some of the people I loved debating with, chatting with over a beer in the students' union until, you know, ludicrous o'clock in the morning were my Marxist friends, every different colour of Marxist, that, that when they tended to hate each other more than the Tories, um, for various different varieties of, of, of socialists. And I, I respected them, their intellectual rigour. And, and I also, I admired the comprehensive solutions they had to the world's problems. Um, and I pitied them, the inevitable disappointment of it never, ever being achieved and and so and we as Christians we don't need to strive to have an answer to the world's problems because the Lord God has delivered that for us but we can do what we do in our places with whatever we have in our hands in whatever postcode we've got in whatever setting we may be in and that I think is hugely encouraging to realize that what you do is significant even if it can be sometimes truly um, uh, truly uh, small I guess and apparently trivial 
I think it's also important to think that, you know, I, I remember when I was running to be party leader, I was um, in some uh, big hustings in the, in the West Country, and I got asked the accusatory question, um, Tim, what's more important to you, your faith uh, or your politics? Um, and I, I kind of tore into this person, basically, and said, look, you realise where the Liberal Party came from, don't you? Uh, we're the party of Gladstone, we're the party of the nonconformists, we're, we are, you know, a party that is, um, liberal, uh, liberalism's roots are in, effectively, uh, the, the, the Christian movement, um, the evangelical Christian movement in the UK in the mid-19th century, and sort of put him in his box. Now, you know, maybe I should have done that more often when I was asked those sort of questions when I was leader. But the better answer to that is, yes, of course, God is more important to me than my politics. Of course he is. Um, because the Bible is not a manifesto. And people misunderstand. They sometimes think, oh, you think these things. Well, you know, it's not like you read the Sermon on the Mount and you think, oh, I'll have a bit of that. I'll sign up. What's the membership fee? It is more that you understand humbly that he is God and you are not. And that his word is reliable because he is reliable and you are not. And, and so I think that to, to see... Um, politics and faith as um, analogous is totally wrong. They're completely different things, although people often will use and see politics and treat it in their own lives a bit like a religion. And when we think about, you know, worldviews, lots of different worldviews, it seems peculiar to me that those worldviews that are of a, a religious uh, a kind of background and, and standpoint are denied or, in many cases, denied access to the public square, whereas those which are secular are allowed access to the public square. And I think that's silly. It doesn't offend me as a Christian, but it does offend me as a liberal. And, and I think that we ought to be um, mindful that, that, um, that, you know, that, that all worldviews in a genuinely liberal society need to have common access to the public square and we need to be much more interested in what other people um, think. Um, I think also it's worth saying, um, and this is something I think we all need to be aware of, that Christianity, done properly, is always, always, always countercultural. It is impossibly radical. Why do I mean that? I mean, so first of all, let's just pick a few things. We are told, therefore, as Christians, that we are not our own bosses. The current culture we are in tells us that self-affirmation, me being me, me being my own king, queen, boss, God, that's the ultimate. It's, Christianity tells you the opposite. You are owned, if you like, by someone else, by God, by another being. You owe everything to him and um, you must humble yourself before him. That is massively, massively countercultural. Grace is also massively countercultural. Spend 10 minutes on social media and you'll see the 21st century's answer to the Pharisees, all spewing out things that they're absolutely convinced are correct, having zero grace or interest in the standpoints of people who fall outside what they consider to be completely and totally correct. Um, we believe as Christians, this is also hugely countercultural, in, in, in something which I can only call as radical equality. And if we look at the, uh, the opening verses, chapters of Genesis, and we see that God made human beings in his own image and that they are very good, of a, of a higher order than everything else. Now, amongst the things that you may or may not know about me is I'm a, well, I'm a colossal nerd and I'm a space nerd. 
And so I am blown away by everything we're seeing through the James Webb telescope, all these nebula, solar systems, galaxies, impossible distances uh, away. All of that is awesome. The most awesome, spellbindingly fantastic, jaw-droppingly amazing thing you have seen through the James Webb telescope is less important than you individually, less important than you. That's good. You're very good. You are made in his image. You bear a level of dignity and significance, which is phenomenal, phenomenal. And so Christians believe in equality because we believe we were made in the image of God, all of us, lofty or not so. But we're not, we're not just made equal accidentally, biologically. We are made stratospherically equal. Um, which, is, which means that our care and concern for other people has to be stratospherically high. Literally no one left behind. No one outside the potential reach of a loving God who made them in his image. It's also just worth bearing in mind, we talk about growth in our lives. We often think about growing, you know, therefore we don't need to depend on our parents. Something hugely radical about Christianity is that growth equals growth in dependency on God. The more you depend on God, the more you grow as a Christian. So these things are countercultural, And so you should not be surprised then, uh, whether you're in politics or you're interested in politics or whatever, if the things you say, think and do jar with the culture you're in. They're meant to. They're meant to. So don't panic if that's the case. And then also let's think a little bit about what that therefore means. Will you um, get shouted down? Will you get criticised? Might you get bullied? Might you get marginalised? Yes. Now, I want to say this. I don't have much time for people, Christians in the West, who spend time talking about us being persecuted. Fundamentally, because this is not Afghanistan or North Korea, right? Um, the levels of trouble that we might have for being Christians are minimal compared to our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world. So we should just be careful about using that kind of language. The other thing it's worth bearing in mind, this is to understand people's perspective. And people, people often say, ah, oh, Kate Forbes wouldn't have been asked those questions if she was of another faith. And okay, maybe, maybe. Remember that to many people who are not Christians, Christianity is the establishment. There are bishops in the House of Lords. We have a Church of England. The king is the head of the church. So you might think, and I might think, the people who are following Jesus are in a smallish minority in this country to the... To non-Christians, it looks like we're the establishment. So we need to understand how others see us before we get too itchy about our position. But let's also remember this. We are promised trouble. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. And then there's the wonderful, amazing line, fear not, I have overcome the world. Wow, but we'll park that for a minute. You're promised trouble. So if someone gives you some grief at work or at school or you know, on the telly, you were promised it. God has just delivered on his promises. Uh, you are promised trouble. What are we told to do when someone gives us grief? Is it to whine about being cancelled? No. It's to turn the other cheek. And to turn the other cheek, I came across this interpretation, I guess, of that line um, just a few weeks ago. Turning the other cheek is not running away. Turning the other cheek is, is graciously defiant. It's saying, have another go. Have another go. Um, I'm not going anywhere. So, but we should turn the other cheek. We, whining about being cancelled is a bad look. I also think it's not what the Gospels tell us to do. So let's accept, if we get in grief, then we must be doing something right. Um, culture war. 
Um, I think that I see, um, oh, this is a terrible simplification, but the left and liberals have a habit when they see the Bible to want, of wanting to subtract things from it that make them feel uncomfortable. And the right, shall we say, in the culture want to add stuff with it to it because they can't really cope with the idea that, well, that grace is a thing. Um, they have to add layers of things. And sometimes that will mean that Christianity will get weaponized by people who will use it alongside flags and other things to do with our national identity. And then others will see Christianity as being part of the weaponry of the, of the right. And we just got to make sure we are culture war peaceniks. Culture war refuseniks. Do not get into those trenches. In the United States, for example, the fact that one party or one part of one party has adopted and appropriated biblical Christianity, brackets, loads and loads of errors added to it, um, that means that half the country has its fingers in their ears when it comes to the gospel. Most people under 40 in America have their fingers in, the, in their ears when it comes to the gospel. Why? Because they think it belongs to those people. So stay out of the culture war. And, and I would say this too, which is part of it. We're all, nearly all of us on social media these days. As Christians, we should passionately believe in the truth and also believe in truth. You know, if you are doubtful, of the uh, veracity of what you're told by the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 or Sky or the Guardian or the Telegraph. Okay, what makes you less, even more trusting um, uh, and less doubtful of the fella down the pub or something you've just seen on Facebook? You have a responsibility as a Christian to test everything that you have before you and don't buy into theories, alternative news, less well-researched than the mainstream media that we disparage. That's not to say that is everything in the BBC and the ITV and everything else is totally and utterly trustworthy, but it's likely to be a lot more trustworthy than that thing you watch you read on the internet. And so we should be warriors for truth and that means being very careful that we don't share as truth passively or aggressively, stuff that we don't know whether is true or not. Hugely important as part of our Christian uh, witness. Um, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that, you know, so cancellation, I'm always worried, as I said earlier on, we can talk about cancellation and, and it's us whining about being had a go out when really we need to be gracious. I think we've got to be careful about um, not deploying it ourselves. Cancellation is the opposite of criticism. We should be prepared to be criticised and to criticise. I heard Elizabeth Oldfield, formerly of, of Theos, talk really interestingly about this recently when she said that one of the problems we face in our society today is that we seem to have lost curiosity for what other people think and why they think it. And if, we, if, what, I, what, I, if what I believe is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, you've got no fear from other points of view. We should be curious as to where they come from and we should encourage people to be curious about us. My great regret in society and discourse today is that so much of it is hostile. You see a person with an alternative worldview and your response is to be hostile to them, to cancel them, to shout at them, to block them. Be curious. Why do you think that? That person was made in the image of God and you should be interested in why they come uh, to the conclusions that they do. So look, I think fundamental to us in our discourse, we should be humble in how we do our politics, kingdom before tribe. We should remember, again, in any discourse we might have, 
and social media personally, however it might come about, that, you know, to use a corny old phrase, we want to win souls, not arguments. I'm happy to walk away from an argument having been defeated if I've left someone thinking more seriously about the gospel than when we started. Be prepared, really be prepared. Those of you who are genuinely thinking that politics might be the life for you, two things I would want to say, the same sort of thing, but first of all, fellowship. Be in fellowship with other Christians. You will be... um, uh, challenged and uh, you know people around you don't understand why you think what you do you will be tempted to make compromises that you shouldn't be in good fellowship with people um, uh, other Christians regularly not just turning up on a Sunday but the other thing which I've really found um, useful to think about now is that whilst everybody in your fellowship doesn't need to share your political beliefs some should you want some people on your journey with you who are going to be part of your campaign team who are Christians and when people um, throw the sort of stuff uh, that I got that Kate Forbes has got you need people who but a are solid believers sisters and brothers in Christ and b get the politics and understand why these things might be an issue make a, um, a big deal about putting that sort of infrastructure around you um, be bold I just indicated earlier on one thing we ought to be aware of is that we've got a right to speak into the public square. I think one thing we need to just be clear about is that there is no such thing as neutrality. We act as though in society in the West today that the absence of faith is neutral and that you're allowed to have religious points of view if you like, but they're kind of eccentric. That's not true. The reality is there is no such thing as neutrality. And in a genuinely free society, we just need to be able to bump up against each other uh, and do so respectfully. So prepared to fight for your place. I mentioned earlier on, you know, be prepared to lose. Um, So um, a a horrific thing that happens at the Liberal Democrat Autumn Conference is something called the Liberal Democrat Disco. I I don't know if you can just picture, just to make it even more horrific than you already think it is, is that it's a kind of competition and uh, you know, senior-ish figures in the party have to play a set. And, and so um, what tends to happen, and I've done it three times and I always lose, um, Joe Swinson uh, won. And, and the reason is, Joe Swinson played the records that people liked. I played the records that people ought to like. And, and so I lost. And, now, and, and I often use that analogy um, to tell Liberal Democrats that they should talk about what the public are interested in, not just what we're interested in. Actually, it works the other way for those of us who are believers in Jesus. Sometimes we need to do it graciously, but we need to be prepared to say what is true, not necessarily what is popular. And if that costs you the position you're aiming for, good. (laughs) That's kind of the deal sometimes. But I also want to say that if there is a, a ceiling to the ambition of Christians, it's relatively high. You've got a young woman in Scotland who I would say has got a 50% chance of becoming the first minister of Scotland at the age of 32. And I know it's only the Liberal Democrats, but I did get to be the leader of the party. So if there is a ceiling, it's not so low. It just involves wisdom and being able to rely on God and being prepared for him to take away things as well as he um, delivers them also. So is politics a mucky business? Yes, it is. And so is everything else since the fall. And we are not told to be hermits, to hide away and to not engage. We're told to get ourselves uh, involved, to get our hands dirty and our hearts broken. I would say politics is, if you would uh, excuse the phrase, a mission field. It is full of people who are searching for answers. Some of them are convinced that they have found the answers, but will often end up being 
disappointed. Mark Twain once said, um, nothing so disillusions the voter than backing the winning candidate because they're always disappointed. But actually, sometimes nothing so disillusions the politician than being the winning candidate because you realise you get into power and you've not been able to fulfil the things that you wished that you could. And so there are so many people in politics looking for answers and we need to be there in the room with them so we can give them the ultimate answer if Jesus is savior and he is then he also must be lord and that means that you're going to live for him every day we're not going to just sit in our hermitages waiting for uh, Jesus to return if Jesus is who he says he is if the resurrection happened then nothing else matters as much as that but everything else still matters because it's made by God's hand and the human beings who are made in his image are of enormous significance and we are there to serve them. I love the Bible so often it gives you perspectives you hadn't had before. And recently we thought, um, looking at a, a passage in our Bible study group, and that passage that tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was this joy that was set before Jesus? What was on the other side of the cross that made that unimaginable pain worth going through? And it wasn't returning to his father because he'd been with his father through eternity. So what was it that was worth all of that? Answer, you. You. Being with you forever and being with your friends and loved ones who don't yet know Jesus. That was the joy that was worth going to the cross for. So if Jesus thinks you are that important that valuable then surely we as Christians in our daily lives we do mundane things nevertheless under his gaze then we should be thinking that people are that valuable and seek to serve them so you know it does matter what you do so my encouragement to you tonight is turn to Jesus and then turn and serve your neighbor thanks for listening